It's a good podcast today. You don't want to miss a second of it. Uh, not one second. Some really good, important things and laugh out loud funny as well. Here it is. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. I've been following the new monkeypox czar. Um, and uh, he's a little controversial. His name is Dr. Dimitri uh, Dasl- Daskalakis, I think. He has a long history in working public health on issues pertaining to the LGBT uh, community. Um, he's helping lead the Biden administration response to the monkeypox outbreak. Now, I want to give you the the lowdown on him from the Daily Caller. Prior to serving in the White House, uh, the doctor was the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC Division of HIV Prevention. According to the statement, he led the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene infectious diseases efforts and developed a clinical practice focused on serving uh, neg- uh, negligible uh, LGBT communities. Over the course of his career, he's developed uh, and deployed some unorthodox tactics to serve that demographic. For instance, he operated an HIV and hepatitis screening clinic out of a small office inside a Manhattan S&M club called Paddles, where men could pay $40 to, uh, you know, part with uh, their coats and clothes and be paddled. He also has dressed in drag to administer meningitis vaccines at sex clubs and bathhouses during an outbreak in New York. Um, He is um, he is known as a progressive, radical gay doctor. All right. That's that's the that's the label given to him by an HIV AIDS organization. So they're on his side and they're like, no, radical. Um. Now, NPR just released an interview with the good doctor, and they had eight questions with the doctor about stopping the U.S. monkeypox outbreak. And reading and listening to him, he sounds rather reasonable. But they didn't ask him all of the questions that perhaps should be asked. Um, there is... Um, there is a, a, a story out about some of the things that he has posted online that are a little uh, disturbing. Um, he is a Columbia University undergraduate, uh, general and religious double major. Um, and some of his um, some of his well, it, you know, starting with the tattoo on his chest of the pentagram appears as though he kind of digs Satan a bit. Um, alongside his his partner, Michael McNeil, uh, the pair launched a goth gym in New York, which originally uh, ran out of um, the uh, high-profile Equinox gym chain before spinning into its own brand based on a, in a former gay nightclub that in turn had taken over an old church in Manhattan. It's called uh, Monster Cycle. And it's got a lot of stuff on their website, you know, references to Satanism, the devil, burning crosses, pentagrams, you know, the usual stuff for your gym. Um, he um, he has a tattoo of the pentagram on his chest, and it says, I've learned there's light even in the darkest of places. 
Um, along with that, he is, it apparently has a corpse of a dead uh, creature of some sort, a serpent, uh, also a head with three eyes, what appears to be a saint-like figure or even maybe Jesus Christ across his, uh, his stomach. Um, and in his, um, in his posts, which now have been removed, uh, there was a series of images from 2012 that appear to depict a seance there. I mean, they're at a Ouija board ceremony with a loose uh, with a, a lit crucifix um, that was laying on the pentagram on on the table. Um, you know, uh, he's got an image wearing a pentagram helmet with an upside down cross above it. Uh, and his partner is dressed, I guess, like Christ, if, if that's what, with a crown of thorns. Uh, and then, you know, he's got the post that says, we'll steal your soul. Uh, all of these, you know, all of these things. Now, the press says, well, he's just entertaining. Well, mm, yeah, I, 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 I guess if that's what you, um, you know, if that's what you like. There's a lot more of this kind of stuff. But that doesn't make you necessarily a Satanist. And let me just let me play devil's uh, advocate here, uh, possibly um, truly devil's advocate. Um, let's say that you believe this guy's just a performer and you can reach the community that most people need. You know, the people that are really in need. He's there. He's got it. You know, and he's just a performer. And, you know, maybe there's a chance that he's not a performer. I don't know. But if that's true, let me ask you, who refused the COVID vaccine at the highest rate? And was COVID a bigger risk than monkeypox to the general population? The answer to that, according to the president, is clearly yes. Well, Donald Trump volunteered to speak up and let the White House Biden use him. Many conservatives even took the vaccine, but no one was ever asked to be a spokesperson. The Biden administration never took up that vile Donald Trump who was saying the same things they were about the vaccine. So if you're truly willing to deal with the devil to protect people, why would you do it this time and not then? By the way, uh, this brings up some disturbing things. You know, we're not talking about somebody that is... You know, in a in an offshoot kind of thing, like, yeah, he's going to be deciding the color of green in our stoplights. This guy is part of the medical community and our healthcare system. The same system that lied about the effects of covid, the same system that never stood for our children, never told us about the vaccines or even our children's the effects of isolation, in fact, denied those things. Is anybody concerned about the doctors that we are now putting together that are not treating people they disagree with over vaccines or hate? There is a perversion of the Hippocratic Oath that is happening right now, which is first do no harm. First do no harm. Is that what we're doing with our children? Is anybody worried about the corruption of the CDC? Fauci, the merger of government, pharmaceutical companies, and doctors, cutting parents out of the medical decisions, life and death, sex and gender, pregnancies, all of these things, cutting the parents out of that line, willing to allow babies to die or be killed after birth. I don't know. I, I, I think we should probably pay attention. 
to what's going on. But the problem is we don't recognize evil anymore. I never understood that good would become evil and evil would be good, uh, would become good. I never understood. How could that possibly happen? Well, now we know. Now we know. A very well-executed uh, propaganda machine that starts in our schools and teaches the things that we think are no big deal. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And at the same time, they delete all of the truth until it gets to a point to where the people wake up. And is it too late? My answer to you is it's not too late. We just have to decide what evil is. Is it evil to sexually abuse children or and let me define that somebody who has a attraction to minors who is an adult, decides they're going to have sex with a very willing eight-year-old. Is that evil or not? Say it out loud. Yes, it's evil. If you disagree with me here, you got a long ride on. And you are part of the problem. If you're neutral on that or unwilling to say that, you are part of the problem. And you will be swept up into the other side. And you don't want to be there. Is it evil to show sex acts to minors? To teach them how to perform sex acts? Is it evil to have drag queens come into our schools where kids can put dollar bills into their G-string? Or just hand it to them. Is it evil to indoctrinate children into hopelessness and hate for the family, hate for God, hate for their own country? Is it evil to force people in to medical experiments? Is it evil to dismember or amputate perfectly good limbs or appendages on a healthy body? Is it evil to endorse and excuse mass looting? To encourage anybody to just go into a store and take what they want and leave? Is it evil to burn down whole cities? To encourage that or to excuse it? Is it evil? To intentionally destroy families, to intentionally destroy gender, to say there is no such thing as a woman, no such thing as a man. Is it evil to cancel free speech in a much more widespread way than the Red Scare? Is it evil to preach color of skin over content of character? 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I could have given that list and everyone in the country, even Bill Maher, even Joe Biden would have absolutely said, even if it was just for performance, they all would have said, of course, those things are evil. Now, our system is pushing and preaching these things. Look, you don't need to be some hero. You don't need to be Martin Luther King. You don't need to be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. All you have to do 
is just recognize the difference between good and evil. That's it. Just recognize it. No, that's evil. I can't do that. Nope, that's that's evil. So what is the opposing force of evil? Because I guess that's what you have to be. It's not good enough, as they say now. It's not good enough just to be against racism. You have to be an anti-racist. Well, that seems evil because that is just getting revenge. That's participating in the thing you say has been so destructive of human beings. And I agree with you. So now why would we do that? So how do you fight evil? We don't recognize evil anymore. But do we recognize good? Do we recognize good? What is good? Is love good? Love is good. Real, true love, if you understand the definition of love. Love is good, but love is God. If you don't believe that God is love, then you've got a screwed up definition of God and love. There is no fear in God. Well, have you read the Bible? It's a pretty scary thing. Yeah, you know, the last part is kind of scary. Why was that given to us? That was given to us so we would not fear and we would be prepared for when, what does they say would happen? Uh, good becomes evil and evil becomes good. You'd be prepared. So there is no fear in love. And love is more than just words. It's action. It should be the main driving characteristic of each of us. It's not of me. I try, but it's not of me. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Now, remember, so when he's saying what it is, it also says what it isn't. So a meritocracy, does that involve envy? No, it shouldn't. A meritocracy is just based on the color, not of the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and what you do with your life. And why should anybody be envious of that? They have their own thing. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This was written by a guy who didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, was killing all the guys that liked Jesus. Till he kind of had an encounter. He's like, whoops, I was wrong. Hey, first thing, redemption. And don't hate the guy who was literally killing your people. Let him go. If he's changed his life, if he's, if he's honest about it, great. Because he might be the biggest spokesperson. He might bring to the table something no one else can bring. And he talked about love. He's the one who wrote all of that. And he wrote it to because the church at the time was really, they weren't demonstrating love. And he said, if I, if I speak in tongues 
of men or of angels. In other words, if I'm talking about all these great things, but I don't have any love in my heart, I'm just making noise. What are we doing right now? How many of us are talking about what we believe in or what we're against? But we don't truly have love in our heart for the people who are now persecuting us. That's what this message was all about. It, it means love is patient. It means loving someone even when you really don't want to. I, that's, how I always, that's how I always know something is from God. Oh, no, please. No, no, I don't, no not that. I don't want to do that. When you really don't want to love somebody, that's when you're supposed to. But don't, 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 don't confuse this. This does not mean you love evil. It means you stand up for truth. Again, you don't need to be some hero. This is very easy for all of us to do. You don't have to start some organization. You don't have to join any march. You don't have to do anything. You just in your realm never, ever tolerate lies on things that you know are untrue. Sexualization of our children is bad. Evil exists. And it has conned a good number of our society into believing evil over truth and good. And more importantly, it's captivated many of our hearts in believing you can't win or to stay silent. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. a must-read book that has just come out called Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, uh, The Death of Merit and the Path Back to Excellence. It is out today. Vivek Ramaswamy is uh, the author, and he joins me now. Vivek, first question, and don't hate me for this if if I've had it wrong the whole time. I am the worst on names, the worst. And every time I see you on a show, you never correct anybody. And they're always pronouncing your name a different way. Am I getting it wrong and you're just being very polite? Or is Vivek well, you, the way you say I your name? That. Vivek is right. Vivek like cake Brahmaswami. Ramaswami. Brahmaswami. Brahmaswami. Yep. Okay. You got it. All exactly. Right. Yeah, you know, those, those, those TV hits, you usually get like three to four minutes. I prefer to talk about content, but since you asked, yeah. I love it. Thank yeah, okay. So, so Vivek, I just, out of respect for you, um, I just, because I'm watching it and I'm so paranoid, I always get things wrong uh, on names, always. Even like my wife, I would screw up her name. Um, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to make sure. Okay, so Nations, uh, Nation of Victims is out. Um, and you're known, at least on this program, as somebody who is very into ESG, um, you know, very, very against it. Uh, you are doing everything you can to bring back merit. This book does not really deal with ESG or anything like that. This is the answer in our own lives. Would you agree? That's right, Glenn. Yeah. I, I, I would agree. I mean, look, I think that there's two sides to this equation, right? Even if you think about the kind of stuff we usually talk about in this program, the kind of stuff I'm working on in the private sector, yes, that is about corporate meddling in our culture. It is about the use of corporate power to advance one-sided progressive agendas, but it takes two to tango. What do I mean by that? 
it also takes a population and a consumer base that's willing to buy those narratives and use that to actually be moved by it. And so, so what this book is about is the broader cultural question. Why is it that consumers are so hungry for a cause and purpose and meaning and identity mm. that they fall for these victimhood narratives that companies and other cynical actors sell them. That's what this book's about. And the case I make in this book is that we've fallen into a moment in our history where we see hardship as the same thing as victimhood. Well, guess what? My thesis is that hardship is not the same thing as victimhood. Hardship is part of what teaches us who we are, both as individuals and as a people. And I think the black hole at the vacuum of the Americans and the vacuum at the heart of the American soul right now is our absence of a shared national identity. And the case I make in this book is that we can fill that vacuum with a shared national identity based on the unapologetic pursuit of excellence through our system of free market capitalism and as individuals who are free agents in the world, regardless of the color of our skin or where our parents came from. That's why I wrote this book. So where where do you think the big turning point, because I think it was 2008, when the bailout happened, we're now doing all of that. And it was the end of personal responsibility for corporations. It really was. It really it was the death of personal responsibility at every level of society. So I, did, I think 2008 was a big turning point for a lot of reasons. What happened in 2008? We had the 2008 financial crisis. We had the bailouts. We had no accountability for, for a lot of financial institutions that took risk at the public at the public's fisc. When times were good, they got paid. When times went bad, the public had to bail them out. But that was also the birth of of the identity politic wing of the new left. It was Barack Obama elected as the first black president of the United States. A lot of the victimhood narratives that went with that were also then in the thick of the greatest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history from the baby boomer generation to my generation of millennials and and Gen Z. And, And I think that creates a new victimhood culture and a culture of entitlement as well. So so there were a lot of things around the turn of the last decade. There were a lot of factors in our culture that conspired to create this new culture of victimhood. And and one of the things I one of the things I uh, describe in the book is also the rise of a laziness culture, even in our our workforce, but in our culture more broadly. And, And one of the one of the things I say in the book is that victimhood fits laziness like a glove in that people today who are lazy and don't want to work construe that not just as their own sloth, which is one of the human vices, but also as a narrative of the grand fight against the oppression of capitalism, the oppression of modernity, the colonialism of capitalism. I mean, these are the kinds of things you hear as part of the great resignation on Reddit in the pandemic over the it started back in the post 2008 era. And so I think it was it was a combination of a new laziness culture of entitlement that came from my generation being on the receiving end of this large intergenerational wealth transfer, but combined with these victimhood narratives that justified that laziness with a moral veneer. That's part of what led to us now having a shared national identity based on victimhood. We're a nation of victims. So you and, and, and I think the case I make is we need to graduate from that. Um, you um, you talk about Plato's ideal society and you talk about it because you say, you know, that's how we find the ideal citizen. What is the ideal citizen? In 2022, in America, I mean, this is this is the question of our hour. Okay, so I I think there are two parts to what it means to be American, and I think each of us has some of this in our heart. On one hand, we all want to be an individual who's able to pursue our own individualistic dreams through the system of free market capitalism. That's what we think of as the American dream. I have that impulse. You have that impulse. Most of the listeners in this program share that feeling too. 
That's half the story. That's what I call the shared, the, the pursuit of excellence, the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. But, but I think there's another half of the story too, Glenn. I think that many on the right, many of us have missed for years, which is also our hunger to be part of a nation that is greater than the sum of its parts, a collective whole as citizens. And that's the side of our identity as individuals that really, I think, re- revolves around also the revival of civic duty. One of the chapters in the book is entitled A Theory of Duty. It's a play on John Rawls's A Theory of Justice, which was the North Star of the left for much of the late 20th century. I offer what I call a theory of duty, which talks about the revival of civic duty. And the case I make is that it's not at odds with liberty to have a civic duty. Our civic duty as citizens is different than the freedoms we want to have in all of the other spheres of our lives, including economically. And I think it's one of the things that conservatives sometimes get wrong. We get wrong. In our, in our obsession with just talking about freedom, and believe me, I'm 10 out of a scale of 10 on that discussion, we miss the fact that if we have civic duties as citizens, that actually gives us greater fortitude to pursue our freedoms through the system of free market capitalism, well, through our pursuit of excellence as individuals. And so that's the philosophy at the heart of this book. Actually. I'm old enough that, uh, you know, in high school, you couldn't graduate without having a class called Rights and Responsibilities. And we've forgotten the responsibility part. And that is, like you say, huge. But, you know, I learned something when I lived in um, in New York City. When I moved to New York City, I was always a guy who, if there was garbage on the street, I would, you know, pick it up and throw it in the garbage can. And it was just ingrained in me. I grew up in a smaller town. And, um, and after about two years of living in New York, there was garbage at the front of my building uh, on 6th Avenue. And it was just this newspaper is just blowing everywhere. And my first thought was, how much money do I have to pay this stupid city for them to keep it clean? And I stopped in my own tracks and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've turned into one of them. In a certain sense, well, that's really honest of you, Glenn, to talk about looking in the mirror that way. It's, it's something that more of us ought to do is actually before we point the figure outward. Let's take a mirror and look within. It's funny. I'm talking to you from a car in New York City right now where I'm literally seeing bottles lining the street on the left-hand side of my car without somebody stepping down to pick it up. Yeah. And I think that that idea of civic duty is something that, you know, I I, I could call out the liberal side of this. I have been for years. I do a little bit of that in the book as well. But I think it's a place for the conservative movement to look internally and say, all right, look, we can criticize the poison that fills the vacuum all we want. At the end of the day, we're not rising to the occasion if we don't fill that vacuum with something more meaningful, something more rich that dilutes the poison. But see, so, so help me out because Vivek, I think, and I know religion plays a big part, you know, in, in the book and in your life. Um, the, the, the right would say we do our civic duty. We're much more charitable. We work through our churches. I know people who go on missions all the time. I mean, we do do our civic duty. That's what they would say. The left. Well, I think we need more of that. I okay. think we need more of that. Uh, and so I think that there's, I think there's true, I think there's definitely, that, that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm more interested in speaking to the conservative movement than I am to the left, because I think that there's a greater chance of filling that national vacuum. If we're going to have to pick which, which political party or which political movement's going to do it, I'm more optimistic about the conservative movement. So that's why I'm, you know, preaching, preaching to that choir rather than the other one, because I think that's our best chance of success. I think we need to revive that though. And I, and I think there's one of two directions for the future of the conservative movement. Either one that, wallows in a new version of victimhood in response to left-wing victimhood, which I've been, by the way, a big critic of. And, and a lot of what I'm saying is a self-reflection, Glenn. 
I have spent the last two years criticizing a lot of woke victimhood culture, left-wing victimhood culture. But one of the things I've learned in looking, talking about introspection for myself, is how much and we're moving the needle a little bit by putting the spotlight on the problem. But if we want to move the needle in a big way, I mean, we've got a generation left to save the identity of this country. And if we're going to do it, it's not going to come just by pointing our finger no. at all of the hypocrisies of the other side, because that would take all of our time. No, We would have no time left, and time would have run out before we're actually able to save our national identity. We need to fill the void of national identity with something else. And what I offer in this book is, is, is two visions for that. One is the revival of the shared pursuit of excellence. That's part of what I'm working on, by the way, in the private sector. In the, board, in the letter that I sent to the board of directors of Chevron last week through what I'm doing at Strive, I'm trying to do that through the private sector. That's still only half the story, though. And I think that as citizens, we also need to revive our sense of civic duty to start talking about that more. You know, I think, I think it's a provocative idea I offered in my last book. I talk about it in this one, too, of even thinking about weaving civic service into education. That's something that makes conservatives a lot of libertarian-leaning conservatives, even myself 10 years ago, would have recoiled at that idea. That feels like it, it's, a, it's an infringement on our liberty. Well, what I say is, first of all, if you start at a young enough age, we accept that children under the age of 18 or 16 are not yet free agents in the world. We have to create those citizens. And weaving the idea of service, of identity as a citizen in your country, is part of what allows you to actually be an unapologetic capitalist an unapologetic free agent once you do enter that world. And, and part of the problem, I think, is that we have an entire generation, my generation, that never learned how to do actual service, nor how to pursue their self-interest in their own right by commingling the two. We never learned how to actually do either one on its own. And so I think we'll actually create great, a greater generation of capitalists, a greater generation of free individualist agents in the world, if we also revive this idea of living out our civic duties. And I think that you're right, a lot of conservatives in their private lives do it. I think we need to make that a part of a North Star I think of you're, the, what it means to be a conservative in America. I think you're seeing that now with the takeover of the school boards and, you know, the the local uh, uh, city councils, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, conservatives, you know, they were busy keeping their nose, you know, to their business and down to the grindstone and et cetera, et cetera. And just thought, oh, this exactly. is all being taken care of. It, it, it was being taken care of, just not in a way we, we appreciate Exactly. And one of the things I like to do, Glenn, is sometimes just let's take a step back from the present. Let's take a walk through history. So, so one of the things I do in the book is actually I talk to a lot of, about a post-Civil War history and the Reconstruction era. But one of the areas of history I go to is actually Roman history. And one of the things I reminded myself of is, you know, you hear a lot of analogies today between the fall of the American experiment and the fall of Rome. Well, well guess what? There was no one rise or one fall of Rome. There were many rises mm -hmm. and many falls. And, and in you know what? I don't think we're done with this American experiment quite yet either. There were many rises and many falls of Rome. There were many rises and many falls of this country and this great experiment as well. And, and I tell the story of, it was, it was an interesting one. I hadn't studied it since high school. Emperor Septimius Severus, he was known as the Black Emperor. Okay, that's how I studied him in high school, at least. One of the things I learned while doing the research for this book is actually, he only got that name, the Black Emperor, in the last few decades, as he was re-described in modern American history. There was a TV series that, that highlighted the story of the first, first black man to walk on England's soil came not as a slave, but as a conqueror. And then they made a whole narrative around it. Well, the funny thing is, if you go back to the Roman era, people could see that he had dark skin, but it was no different than someone having dark eyes or dark hair. The thing they actually cared about was, were you a Roman citizen or were you not? Were you a member of this nation or were you not? That's how they actually saw him. 
And in a certain sense, we have created our vision, even of history. He's the black emperor we need, not the black emperor he actually was. That was never how the Romans saw him. And, and it just shows you how anachronistically even we view history, that if we're able to take off the goggles of the present, the filters of the present, and actually even just take ourselves out of the present, it suddenly becomes politically less controversial. We're able to talk about these ideas in ways that are a thousand years removed. But then you come back to the present and you see what a strange world it yep. is that we live in. Yep. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons I, I felt compelled to write this book. It's not for everybody, but, but if, it, if, you're, if you're a lover of history, if, if you're interested in potentially the parallels between Roman history and modern American history, how we got here dating back to the post-Civil War Reconstruction era where victimhood culture began, and, and I think how we were able to translate that into the victimhood culture that we see today, you know, for, for those who actually enjoy that walk through history, that's who this book is, was intended for, in contrast to Woke Inc., my last book, which is, which is more about current events and, and the current era. This is a walk through history that gives us, hopefully, a different view of the present. Yeah, well, you've really targeted the wrong audience for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> this, this audience, it, that's you are speaking their language. Uh, it is great. It's called A Nation of Victims. Uh, and it's written by Vivek Rameshwamy, and we appreciate everything that you do, Vivek. Thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for having me. You bet. Nation of Victims, a must-read. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Tim Baxter, welcome, sir. Glenn, thank you so much for having me. You bet. I uh, I reached out to Thomas Massey a couple of weeks ago when I before I went on vacation. I said, Thomas, who is out there that is that you think is a warrior for the Constitution? Yours was the first one he uh, he mentioned. So we wanted to get you on. Welcome. Um, tell us about yourself. Well, well, thanks again for having me. I'm a small business owner. I'm a volunteer state representative. I founded a nonprofit in my community to help people get off of drugs. And I'm a conservative fighter. I've been fighting for the Constitution and the legislature. I led the fight um, for medical freedom against vaccine passports. I've been leading the fight against illegal immigration. And I'm running for Congress because up is down now. And we need warriors like Thomas Massey to push back against the swamp on both sides. People like McCarthy uh, you know, Paul Ryan 2.0, on top of Pelosi, they're all complicit in the destruction of our country. And we need the right people that are unafraid to take bold action. And that's why I stepped up to fight back. So the guy that's running against you for the Republican primary today is a guy who's already lost uh, once, uh, I think, by five right. points to a Democrat. Um, this is this is really important to flip this seat. And uh, nobody's done it. You'd be the only uh, Republican in all of New England in Congress. Let me just let me just tell you a couple of things about him. Um, he is called for the abolishment of the IRS. OK, nice. Biden's like impeachment. Yes. Ending CRT, securing the border, f- uh, federal abortion ban and uh, and annihilating the swamp. Now, mm-hmm. Tim. Can we just start with that sexy, sexy idea, abolishing the IRS? Amen. That's what we need to do. Uh, And that's something you're talking about how we win. We're doing a couple of things very differently. Number one, Chris Pappas, the incumbent. 
he's from the biggest city in the district and for the state. And so Matt Maurer's last time, he avoided it because the conventional wisdom was he's already got the votes there. We've taken the opposite approach. We set up our campaign headquarters there and we're hustling for every single vote. That's going to help us today in the primary, but it's going to help us defeat Pappas in the general as well. And the other big thing is my stance against Kevin McCarthy. I've been very clear on the hell no vote on Kevin McCarthy because he's corrupt. We don't need these swamp rats running our government. And that's something independents can identify with because Pappas is beholden to, to Pelosi. And Mowers is in the back pocket of uh, Kevin McCarthy. That's why McCarthy's super PAC has spent $3 million. And I've been telling voters, you know, imagine what someone expects in return from you if they spent $3 million mm-hmm. on you. But I, 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 will, I will tell you, um, I don't hear a lot of Republicans talking about McCarthy, and I think he's... I think he is, uh, you know, cut from exactly the same cloth as all of those swamp rats are. That's right. And, you know, a lot of the people that are running for Congress or in Congress know it, but they're just too afraid to do anything about it. And at the end of the day, the people of New Hampshire have to decide, are you going to let them buy your vote? Are you going to let them buy your vote? But you have another choice. You can vote for me. I've got a rock solid voting record. That's why I've been endorsed by Congressman Thomas Massey and Senator Rand Paul. I'm proud to be the only person in New Hampshire for any office that's endorsed endorsed by them. Uh, And so make sure to go out and vote today. If you're in the first district here in New Hampshire, vote for Baxter, vote for freedom. Baxterforcongress.com. Tim Baxter is his name in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, let me just ask you, um, uh, the the whole Fauci thing, you were in your state house and you were very vocal and fought really hard to stop vaccine passports and everything else. What do you what are you planning on doing when it comes to Fauci and the CDC and everything else? If the Republicans can gain control of Congress. Great question. So very early on. Um, I called for putting Fauci in prison, which is where he belongs, for lying under oath to the American public. And there's a lot of stuff on top of perjury that is extremely concerning about Fauci. So he needs to be investigated by the House Oversight Committee. But you see too often rhinos use investigations as cover to prevent taking real action. He needs to go to prison. And then the CDC should be abolished because the way they handled COVID was an absolute disgrace. And and my position on the CDC, big shocker when you're running against fake MAGA people and a a bunch of panderers, basically, I'm the only one with that position in my race. So if medical freedom is important to you, please go out and vote for me, Tim Baxter, today. Tim, best of luck. We'll be watching tonight uh, in... uh in new hampshire and if you don't happen to win this call never happened we're for the other guy or woman or whoever (laughs) (laughs) but uh best of luck to you i i uh i hope you win thank you thank you you bet um that's tim baxter you can find him at baxterforcongress.com you know i i there is something that's happening and i've talked to the republicans if you plan on just running on we're gonna have hearings no, nobody's no. You're this is your last. This is your last election. 
this is it. If the Republicans don't take this on this time, they never will. They never will. Everything from the Hunter Biden to the Fauci to where is our $60 billion in, uh, in Ukraine? Where is that? Where did it go? Where, where is that money? Any of that come back here? I'm just saying. I'm just asking questions. Any of that come back here? Uh, you know, there, there are things here that are absolutely criminal. And if they don't take care of them uh, and they let, I mean, did you see the, uh, the uh, new report out about the IRS and who's really going to be affected? Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, mm-hmm. this is coming from the GAO. They're saying it's going to be the average citizen to lower class citizen. That is going to be hit the hardest. It's the way it happens every time. Every time. Every time. And they tell us every time, no, no, this is for the elites. This is for the rich. This is for the millionaires. No, it's not. This is for this is for the people who don't pay any income tax, but they make a billion dollars a year. No, that's not who's affected. And if we don't, uh, if we can't do things now, if we can't get the Republicans, Republicans, you're over. You are over after this election. Uh, and I have to tell you, you would have a very good shot of somebody like Donald Trump coming in and splitting a party and actually winning uh, as a as a, a completely different uh, party because it, it's we've had enough of it. And I think Republicans and Democrats have had enough of it. Enough. Enough is enough. Na, 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 na.